This is Dr. Frank Leon Roberts. And my name is Aldo B. Martin, and this is Finding James Baldwin. The year is 1942. Bambi and Casablanca were in the movie theaters. Duct tape and instant coffee were introduced. The world's first nuclear reactor was built in Chicago. The Manhattan Project began. And atomic power was first harnessed. U.S. car makers switched from mass-producing cars to now making war materials. The minimum draft age went from 21 years of age to 18 years of age. The United States conducted an air raid on Tokyo as a retaliation for Pearl Harbor. Although the attack on Tokyo did not inflict much damage, it did, however, make clear that Japan, at that time, was vulnerable to air attacks, thus establishing the possibility of the future bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. The most recognizable world leaders of the time were Franklin Roosevelt of the United States, Winston Churchill of the United Kingdom, Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union, Adolf Hitler of Germany, Benito Mussolini of Italy, Francisco Franco of Spain, and Hideki Tojo of Japan. All the while, despite this tumult, Life continued at Clinton High School as the sports teams continued to compete and the writers in the Magpie continued to write. And James Baldwin gives us a short story titled Aunt Tina. Tina. I do not remember that any of us ever called her anything but Tina, a variation of the Spanish word for aunt, which my father, who is of Spanish extraction, introduced to the family. Her real name was Rosa, and though she was generally considered to be older than my father, no one ever discovered her real age. If asked, she would smile archly and say, Sweet Sixteen or merely close her eyes and give a cryptic nod. When I was much younger, she and my grandmother lived with us, and Tina worked in a hotel, the White Hotel in Lower New York. Every day she would bring home some sweet or some toy for each of us. There were only four children then, and she would sit by in delight while we pranced about her to show our appreciation. Her step upon the stairs was the signal for riotous rejoicing among the small fry. 
and often she could not get in the door because of the eager dancing bodies. Here, my mother would say, making a vain attempt to be dictatorial. You children, let your aunt get in. You'll frighten her to death. An obvious departure from the truth, for Tina was built on strong martial lines, and it was not possible for her to be intimidated by anything. That's all right, she would say, sitting down with a loud sigh and beaming on us. You been good children today? And of course we would say, yes! And she would give us peanuts or jelly beans or crackers and settle in the rocking chair and tell us wonderful fairy tales of princesses, thieves, goblins, and sleeping beauties until long past bedtime. Tina had been unhappily married somewhere in the vague, unreal past, and she and my father often quarreled over the husband of her youth. His name appeared to have been Terry, and Tina hated him. My father and mother, devout Christians, attempted to show her the error of hatred, but to no avail. I ain't no hallowed saint, she would say. Her eyes looked dimly off into space. I hate him. He ruined my life. During one of my father's frequent disagreements, Aunt Tina became violently offended and returned to her room in tears and fury. She locked herself in and refused all communication with the outside world. Late that evening, she went out. The next morning, a moving van was spied from the window. A moving van was to us an unusual and arresting thing, in a class with fire engines, patrol wagons, and ambulances. Wonder who it's for, we said. We did not wonder long. Aunt Tina came from her room, dressed for the street, and loaded down with parcels. Goodbye, she said. We stared at her, aghast. One of the men from the moving van banged on the door. Her few things were quickly removed as we children stood there too amazed to speak or move. My father spoke. You acting like a fool, Tina. Thank you, she said. She walked stiffly out the door, down the steps. Halfway down she turned. Ignoring my father and mother, she waved at us children. Goodbye, she said. Then she continued slowly down the steps. The downstairs door banged. She was gone. It seemed to be a fixation with her that almost everyone she knew was out to do her in. I have heard her express the most violently derogatory opinions of some Ernstwild friend without having any factual basis at all. After she left us and went rooming, she was continually moving from one place to another. So-and-so ain't got the right spirit, she would say, eyes flashing. I'm gonna move tomorrow. In vain did my mother plead with and my father rebuke her. Her decisions, once made, were unshakable. Always, a month later or so, the process repeated itself. Her longest sojourn with anyone was with a dusty, Dickensian widow by the name of Griffiths that had met at a church social, related their biographies over the punch bowl, and promptly became fast friends. Tina moved in with her, and for weeks on end, all we heard were praises of Mrs. Griffiths. Mrs. Griffiths was so kind. Mrs. Griffiths was a real Christian. Mrs. Griffiths was the president of this church society and treasurer of that one. Mrs. Griffiths had had a husband who drank, a daughter who died, and a faithless brother from whom she never heard. In a word, Mrs. Griffiths was all that could be desired. At our house, there was wild rejoicing, naively unmixed with misgivings. Tina had found anchor at last. 
And then, slowly, the communiques began to change. Mrs. Griffiths had quarreled with Tina for no more important reason than the latter's extravagance and use of Mrs. Griffiths' sugar for winemaking purposes. You'd have thought I was a thief, exclaimed Tina. She had spread evil gossip about her at church, or so at least Tina concluded, on walking in one morning and observing that the pastor failed to shake hands with her after service was over. Within a week, they parted. Tina going to live with one of my father's friends downtown. About a month later, Mrs. Griffiths was discovered by the janitor, sitting in her chair, with a Bible in her lap, staring blankly at the wall. She was quite dead. Tina did not attend the funeral. She made one comment. I knew the Lord was going to punish her for the way she treated me. And as an afterthought, I hope hell is hotter because she's there. Occasionally, she comes to her house in tearful anger over some trivial incident or threatens to move, but the threats lack its former conviction because we sense that Tina has only one more journey to make. Her shoulders sag now, her eyes are dull, she no longer brings us sweet meats and is no longer greeted with rejoicing at her gates. She visits now with my mother and father, eats, quarrels, and weeps with them, and disappears. However, she sometimes takes the smaller children to a Saturday movie. This Saturday, they're going to see a revival, Betty Davis in All This in Heaven Too. It's the story of a sweet, beautiful young girl who was misunderstood by everyone and has many trials and tribulations, she explains. It reminds me so much of my own life. James Baldwin Okay, there's so much I want to say about this story. First, I want I just want to start with this. This auntie this auntie lady is something else. And oh gosh. I, I need to say this. I feel like we all know an auntina. And I'm ashamed to say that sometimes I am auntina. Me too. I think I'm auntina right now. <laughs> <laughs> pull it closer to you. I hope we caught that. Pull, oh, pull the mic closer to you. That was yeah. a good line. Yeah. I, Oh, we caught that. It was great. So I just I just want to get that out the way. What I love about this story, the genius in this story, is how I don't know if there's a literary term for it, but please tell me if there is. He describes the story in the last few lines. Mm, 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 mm. Where he says, It's the story of a sweet, beautiful young girl who is misunderstood by everyone and has many trials and tribulations. Mm. It reminds me of so much of my own life. Mm. He told the story, wrote the story, we heard the story, we read the story, mm-hmm. and then at the last sentence- Provides this summation of what it's all about. Provides a summation of what it's all about. Yeah. Genius. It is genius. And, you know, the second sentence of the short story is, 
her real name was Rosa. And why that's relevant here is that there is no question in my mind that Aunt Tina is a reference to Sister um, Rosa Horn. Who, yeah, you know about Sister Rosa Horn? (laughs) Sister Rosa Horn was really the black woman who turned Baldwin into a preacher. It was not his father, his stepfather, David. Rosa Horn was a black woman who led her own church in Harlem called the Mount Calvary Pentecostal Faith Church. Mother Horn. Mother Horn, right? Who was, she was a, she was a radio evangelist. We talked about the popularity of radio as a medium. She was really one of the first, before there was a mega church movement, there was this radio mega church movement where you had pastors on the radio. So Sister Rosa Horn was known to have hundreds of people, sometimes thousands, flock to her assembly Mm. to see her heal the sick, sometimes raise the dead, so they speak, as local legend and lore would have it. And he was deeply influenced by Sister Rosa Horn. And so there's no question to me that the Aunt Tina reference, the fact that he says her real name was Rosa, is in fact a reference to... um, Miss Sister Rosa Horn. This woman was the granddaughter of slaves. Um, and there's a there's just she's a kind of fascinating footnote, not just in Baldwin history, but in African-American religious history of the early and, and mid 20th century. That is yeah. that is quite the gem, young man. As 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 they say in the streets, you are cooking with grease. Uh Oh, uh oh, I mean, cooking with grease right now. I, yeah. I, I love that. Well, you know what? Let's let's go back to Auntina. Yeah. I get the impression, and I think you're more of an expert on this book than I am. I get the impression, well, not the impression, but Aunt Tina kind of reminds me of Aunt Florence. Oh, absolutely. And Go Tell It on the Mountain. Absolutely. And this is one of the things, so James Campbell, shout out to James Campbell, another great book, Talking at the Gates, A Life of James Baldwin, one of the early biographies that we hope all of our listeners go out and and cop. Um, Should I be using... That term, cop, I do not like. Uh, listen, listen, we know what it means. We know what it means. We know just, what it means. Listen, for those who don't know, to yeah. cop means to go get. To go get. To go purchase. And if we could. To go acquire. Oh, and what is the etymology of that particular use of the term cop? And that's a whole other for another podcast. For, <laughs> but Aunt Tina, yes. So one of the things that James Campbell's argues is that Aunt Tina is a reference likely to Aunt Florence, as well as possibly a reference to his literal aunt Barbara, who was David's sister. Um, and so I think that that's absolutely a correct reading. But also, you know, Aunt Tina is a part of what will become, again, a running theme in Baldwin's work, which is representations of strong black women, right? We see Florence in Go Tell It on the Mountain. We see Tish in If Beale Street Could Talk. That's right. We see Ida in Another Country. Um, we see Sister Margaret in a- the Amen Corner. The black women. Can I give you one yeah, more? Yeah, and, yeah. And I, I don't remember her name. I don't think she has a name. Yeah. But the brother's wife in Sonny's Blues. Oh, because I about the brother's wife. Because because remember the nameless protagonist's wife. The nameless yeah. protagonist's wife. Because remember the nameless protagonist and Sonny had a very yeah uh, a clashing type of relationship. Yes, of but the only one that could reach Sonny. Mm. was his wife mm. Mm. that's powerful really, yeah so so even then in just in mention 
yeah. he still has his reverence for what it is that black women contribute. That's right. And hold their own, right? And stand on their own and stand on two feet and stand 10 toes down. Also, you know, Aunt Tina in this story is a wanderer. You know, he talks about she's moving from space to space and she's kind of doing her own thing, which is also Baldwin's um, interest in these kind of wandering figures. You know, again, that's Sonny and Sonny's blues. Yes, it is. That's Rufus literally wandering, you know, through the streets of New York City, right? This idea of like the black outsider as a wandering figure, right? Who's always on the move. We see that. We do. With Miss Aunt Tina. We do. We, re- we really do. Also, the reference, I love that there's a reference to Betty Davis in this. Oh, man. So, oh, you know, man. Yeah. Like, so for those who are unfamiliar, James Baldwin had this incredible, strange, lovely, ongoing fascination with Betty Davis. Yes, he did. He has, you know, in his, in his appreciation, l- appreciation, right. Um, in the devil finds work, his meditative, um, treaties on the power of American cinema. He spends so much time talking about Betty Davis. And we know that, um, as many scholars have remarked, it had to do with, first of all, his fascination with cinema, with movies as an American pastime. And also with Betty Davis, uh, he, he was interested in her ugliness in the sense that her ability to be ugly for the camera and grimace for the camera and be animated. And it reminds she, she was considered ugly. She was considered beautiful, hmm. but there was something about, he talks about something about her ability to be grotesque with her eyes and the literal way she would maneuver her face and be so animated. It reminded Baldwin of himself or the way people talked about him as a kind of grotesque. Mm. Um, and his eyes. And his eyes. And so, but to know that this fascination with Betty Davis, we can actually locate in teenage Baldwin's writings is fascinating. Because I think it may well be the case that this short story, Aunt Tina, is probably the first ref- literary reference mm. that the public has to Betty Davis, which is another reason why these magpie writings are of great literary value because they tell us a broader and longer story about Baldwin's engagement with figures that would reappear and reoccur all throughout his literary corpus. So I just, just amazing. And I love that you said, here's this Betty Davis reference because she's been referenced before. Yeah. Several times. Absolutely. But this might be the first one. I think this has to be the first one, unless we find something deep in the front, in the pilot, in the Douglas (laughs) pilot, this would be the first (laughs) Betty Davis reference. In the pilot. (laughs) In in listening to this story, uh, (laughs) it really sounds like a Tyler Perry movie. Yeah. It just, it just, it's so I true. Could, I could see it. It's you know? so true. Who would play Aunt Tina? I'm thinking Alfred Woodard. 
I'm really? Getting, I'm getting Alfred. What you see? Somebody I was, young. I was thinking. I was thinking Taraji P Henson. Oh, you think this is a younger woman? It could be. Okay, it could be. It, it not necessarily a younger woman, but that vibe. But that sassy. Oh man, Taraji. This is Taraji. Oh, are energy. you kidding me? Hell yeah, listeners. Who do you think would be <laughs> Aunt Tina? Would, would it be more Alfred Woodard like, or would it actually be more Taraji Henson like? I'm Yo, thinking. Actually, I think you're right. It's probably more Taraji. I, I think. I think it I'm is now. Right. Alfred Wood. Wood is she was she the one in Crooklyn? Yes, she was. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Phenomenal actress. Yeah. yeah. Both Phen- of them. Phenomenal actress. Listen, you might even throw Viola Davis in there if you want. Hey, we give some Viola. No, yep. actually, Viola, I think would be would be um would be uh, Tina's sister in law, right? Mm. The brother's wife. I okay. see Viola as that. Okay. Who would be the uncle though? The Tina's uncle, brother. I'm getting. What's the brother's name? Oh my gosh, he was in Greenleaf. Is that Keith David? Brother Keith David. Oh, in Greenleaf. Greenleaf. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the yeah, yeah. Uh, the bishop. <laughs> the bishop. You can't tell me that that's not Brother Griffith. Like, what? <laughs> Listeners, go out and Google Keith David and tell me that's not who. Hold on. I want to make sure we got the right name. We I, do. I believe you did. Oh, uh, I can. Because, hold up. Keith David, right? Absolutely. Keith. Shout out to Keith. Keith oh, yeah, David. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. He is right. definitely that. He's so a who, patriarch. Who's the child? Now that I don't know, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to pick any yeah. child actor if, if who's, yeah. whoever's out there. But Taraji P Henson is on Tina. Yeah. But what I love about what we're saying, right, is that how Baldwin the the vivid descriptions Baldwin does such a wonderful job of painting a picture for us of people that we, assuming that the we, for instance is a black audience in this case, right? That we know and are familiar with, that we know these women. Wait, hold we know up, these though. People. But wait, wait, wait. The audience are the white young men of Clinton High School. Well, that's true, too. So here he is taking the risk that they don't know, but he's like, let me introduce you to my world. Mm. And can I, you know what, that, and can I say something? That actually reminds me of one of the reasons that I love James Baldwin is that Baldwin is so unique and singular, really, yeah. in the black radical tradition. And that he is one of the few black radical thinkers that has this extraordinarily diverse coalitional audience. I mean, think about it. What other black, unapologetically black radical writer can we say is loved by black radicals, Mm. white liberals, Mm -hmm. white gay men, black trans women, young people, old people? people who are college educated, people who are non-college educated. Baldwin people ha- people who are unks. People the unks, <laughs> the unk, the aunties, the unk community, that the unk, the unk and auntie community right. of, the, of the world. I mean part of the value of James Baldwin is that he ha- he draws so many publics that wouldn't otherwise be in conversation and that is I think what makes him unique and singular in the black radical tradition in that and not in this like neoliberal way or this corny way it's not that at all it's that there's something about james baldwin's work and james baldwin's legacy that gathers together these unique constituencies and audiences that are not often otherwise in conversation oh man i love that i love that something you said before making this point or at least in the beginning of your point how he's able to you know bring about these characters these sophisticated characters i think but it also makes me wonder wh- what an observer of life this young man was. Oh yeah, 
Because who's Aunt Tina? Is that somebody in his life? Is that yeah. somebody in his family? Is that somebody in his church? Yeah. Or is it an amalgamation of all of That's the right. above? Right? And he's just observing how it is that people act and conduct themselves. And everything that we've read so far, everything that we've read so far is from a young man who has never left New York City. Mm, 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 mm. At least not physically. Yeah. Not yeah. physically. Right? Not left yeah. New York City. You would think he has a broader world view mm-hmm. because he's been to different places. Mm-hmm. But nah, he's just riding on the whatever train it was. I don't know if it was the four train at the time, but yeah. taking the train from Harlem to Marshall Parkway in the Bronx. Yeah. That's what he sees. That's his world. And he's able to give us all this. Yeah. That's astounding. That's astounding. As a, as a 16-year-old kid, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here. But I just want the audience to understand this is 16 years old we're talking about. Yeah. And 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 the care and famil- familiarity with which he articulates the experience of the outsider, which yeah. is what Aunt Tina essentially is. That's right. Right? That time and time again, Baldwin paints these portraits of literary outsiders that are clearly autobiographical extensions yeah. of himself. Yeah. Right? So here it's Aunt Tina. And another story, it's someone else who takes on another name. But it literally is always Baldwin, right? Who knows what it feels like to be ostracized, to be exiled, to be on the margins, and also to be a perpetual outsider. What we see in this story is his allegiance to those people who are on the margins of the margins. You know, you you have a knack. You have a knack for closing out. For closing out. That's because I know how to end class early.